Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Recently, we had a conversation about the risks of IULs. Index Universal Life Insurance. Now, I know this isn't a popular view given the attractiveness of these policies because of the widespread perception of their safety and growth rate. Now, that's why it's more critical than ever to talk about the warning lights to ensure that you have the information to make the best decisions. Now, it really doesn't matter how great something looks on the outside. If it's just a facade, but the structure is unstable, wouldn't you want to know? Now, if these policies start out great, but decline and grow progressively weaker with time, wouldn't that be something you'd like to know up front? Now, imagine buying a car. If you drove it off the lot, it was in pristine condition, but the brakes, the axle, the engine, and even the body of the car started to deteriorate rapidly, that wouldn't be a good car for you. Now, if it was known that that car's useful life was uncertain at best, and the engine and the brakes had a 50% chance of weakening to the point of making the car undrivable in three years, wouldn't you want to know? Now, in today's show, we're digging deeper into IULs to further dissect IULs' mathematical and statistical faults. Now, joining us for this important conversation today is Todd Langford, CEO and developer of Truth Concepts Financial Calculators, and he's better known as a financial truth teller. Now, the reason that we're going to go to this great length is that if it was just an opinion about IULs, it really wouldn't matter all that much. But the way to know if something is financially sound is to foretell its future mathematically. And there's no one more qualified to do that than Todd Langford. So where does this conversation fit in the bigger picture of your journey to time and money freedom? Well, here at The Money Advantage, we are a community of wealth creators, entrepreneurially minded business owners who want more financial control and cash flow. So we've put together the business owner's three-step cash flow system to help you keep more of the money you make, protect it, and finally turn it into more through the right investing decisions so you can create time and money freedom. Now, today's conversation about index universal life insurance fits in the second stage of protection because it really doesn't matter how much cash you keep or how much cash flow you have if any one event can rob you of what you've built and make you poor. So here's a little bit more about Todd Langford. Now, Todd has been on the forefront of financial software development and training for over 33 years. He's been telling the truth and shifting paradigms about all things financial since 1986 when Todd was hired by Norman Baker, a successful financial advisor, to develop calculators that would prove or disprove the validity of certain financial strategies. Now, the calculators gave them a reliable way to compare strategies and test the soundness of any financial choice. Todd has been an advocate of effective financial strategies, regardless of their popularity with Wall Street firms, the media, or investment gurus of the moment. So let's dive into this conversation. Hi, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall, along with my co-host, Bruce Wainer. Good morning, Bruce. You know, Rachel, I think I've said this uh, many times, and people probably getting tired of me saying it. And it's a little bit that we're bragging on ourselves, but you know our guests that we we bring on, uh, we try to add a ton of value to uh, people that are listening to the podcast. So I want everybody to, to hold on for this entire podcast because uh, you're going to get some knowledge from uh, Todd Langford's not only from his conceptual approach to um, the financial services industry, but he's also one of the best, if not the best, people with a computer. Um, to, that can actually show people the actual truth, hence the name Truth Concepts. So we want to welcome Todd today, and we're really excited about uh, having on a great guest. Thanks, Bruce. I'm an honor to be here with you guys. So I uh, thank you very much for this opportunity to talk. It's it's a, a, a an interesting subject and um, one that's not very well understood. So it'll be fine. Absolutely. Well, we're really excited to have you here because of your wealth of experience and. Um, your mathematical background and really being able to understand things from the numbers. And we talk about numbers don't lie. So we're going to go ahead and dig into Index Universal Life or IULs. This is a follow-on conversation and we're going to really dig into the mathematical side of them. So 
Can you tell us a little bit before we get into IULs about your background and how you developed truth concepts in the first place? Well, I was very fortunate. So while I was going to school, finishing up school, um, I was doing some actual computer work um, for um, an estate planner, a large estate planner at the time. Did just a few lives a year, big estate cases, and new numbers that were way different than the way most people looked at numbers. And you have to understand, at this time, the IBM PC had just come out. I mean, literally, um, this uh, Norman Baker, who I was working for, he had um, the latest and greatest of everything. And so he had a single drive IBM PC, one that had two five and a quarter inch floppy drives, and one that had a huge 10 megabyte hard drive in it. And it was <laughs> like, you could never use that thing up. Okay, so that's where it came from back in the days of Lotus. And he understood numbers really well and, and kind of taught me along those lines from a very practical standpoint. Uh, of the way math works and it was very different. I can remember going into the bank one time um, with him to renew a note and this bank note as an example had gone from 4% and they were going to charge him 5% hmm. and he said, you know, the note's going to go up by a point. He said, no, you've raised my note 25%. Yeah. And the bank said, wait a second. No, it's 1%. It's 4% to 5%. He said, no, an increase from 4% to 5% is a 25% increase in the amount of interest that y'all are going to collect. And yes. let me show you how that works. And they were like, oh, Norman, you just calculate numbers the weird way. No, <laughs> you calculate <laughs> numbers the right way. But the banks were able to get away with that very well with just simple adding and subtracting interest rates, which you can't do. So it was really interesting. And so that's who I learned from about the way numbers really work, especially when tied to uh, the financial industry. Wow. Well, that's fascinating. I didn't realize that that was in the state planning and just hearing that concept for the first time um, from you about how interest rates are different and how you really need to think about the actual interest rate change. Um, that's really cool to hear where the, that story originated. So that's great. <laughs> yeah, so how did you go ahead? I was going to say another big piece that he taught me and it was just a one liner. And I think if most people could get their head around this, it would really um, help them understand how insurance works. And that is there are no deals in the insurance industry. Okay. Plain and simple. <clears throat> and what he meant by that was everything is a trade-off between price and risk. Bottom mm -hmm. line. Okay. If we think of our, let's get outside of the life insurance for, for just a minute and think about automobile insurance. Okay. If we have a low deductible, on our, on our automobile insurance, our premiums higher, right? Mm -hmm. Why yep. is that? It's because the insurance company has taken on a larger risk. Mm -hmm. With a higher deductible, the insurance company takes on less risk, therefore they can charge a lower premium. If we look at it from life insurance, an extreme example, we look at term insurance. Why is term insurance so, quote, cheap? Because it's, it's because not likely to have to pay out, right? Right. The insurance company that has very, very little risk on that. On the other side of the spectrum, the extreme opposite is whole life insurance. Why are the premiums so much higher on whole life insurance? Because the insurance company has got a guarantee that they're going to pay that death benefit, whether somebody outlives it or not. So they could actually get the death benefit if they're alive, if they live to endowment age. So the insurance company is on the hook. They're on the risk for the whole thing. So everything is a trade-off between cost and risk. And if we can keep that in mind, I think it really helps understand uh, the way it works. Oh, that's all awesome because so you know I've known you for probably about eight years now, and every time I pick up a little bit of more uh, conceptual knowledge, and and that's a really important because I, I know truth concepts is a lot about numbers, and you're you're always emphasizing even though you know the numbers and even though you teach the numbers, it's really about understanding the concepts. And our listeners have heard me say on more than one occasion there are no deals. And in, in the insurance mm -hmm. industry, and now I just picked up another thing from you is I always related it to the actual life insurance industry, but, but people would probably understand it better when they uh, deal with things that they deal with on a, on a more common basis like car insurance. So I, that's, thanks for uh, sharing that with me. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. In actuarial science, most of the time we think of actuarial science as being related totally to longevity, totally to life insurance, right? But actuarial science, if you look up the definition, it's about property loss, whether that property is a life 
whether that property is an automobile, whether that property is a building, whatever it is. And so actuarial science really encompasses all of the insurance industry. And that's, that's where that goes into effect. And so who can better cover risk than an insurance company for this reason? So, I mean, just a, a quick example. Let's say that I take a coin and I flip it up in the air. It's guaranteed that half the first time it's going to be heads, the next time it's going to be tails, the next time it's going to be heads, the next time it's going to be tails, right? No. no. <laughs> All right. I was like, but, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, what kind of coin do you have that can guarantee those things? No, I've never seen that. All right. But if I do it a thousand times, it's probably going to be getting close to half of the time it's going to be one and half it's going to be the other. If I go to 10,000 times, it's going to be statistically even closer to that half and half. Mm -hmm. So the larger my pool is, right. the, the more size. actuarially accurate my calculations are. That's what an insurance company has the ability to do. And so if we look at it from a one-on-one -on -one standpoint, let's say that um, I want to insure myself for $2 million. If I self-insure, as a lot of people want to do, that means I have to put away $2 million today because mm -hmm. I could die tomorrow. I, that's the only way I would have to fund the entire thing. An insurance company is able to risk pool so they can say, okay, we know statistically based on your age, health, and time frame, let's say we did 20 years, that 10 people out of a thousand mm -hmm. are going to die. All right. So that means all we have to worry about from an insurance company standpoint is what, um, $20 million, 10 lives, $2 million a piece. So because we know that, we can divide that out over that time frame. And so the pure cost on that ends up being only $1,000 a year per person. So now then I can protect my family in the unlikely event of a premature death mm -hmm. for $1,000 a year instead of having to have $2 million sitting there waiting to pay out. That's the advantage of having the insurance company, that ability for them to risk pool and understand the statistics on a wide scale. So inside of that, that's why insurance companies, when people say they want to self-insure, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that in that small pool that you have? Because you're going to have to really fund the whole thing versus let an insurance company who has the, the large pool to be able to handle it and reduce the cost for everybody. You know, it's not, that's it's not anything new. I, I, mm -hmm. um, in fact, we've got a, a paper white paper out and some of the research that was done on it. I think it was in Greece, 600 BC is where they started uh, societies to collect money for um, if a death occurred. So th they knew that even back then. All right. So mm -hmm. this is, this, this is nothing new. It's just right. not thought of very often. Right. And I love that you're sharing the ideas that come into why, why we insure in the first place why insurance is a good decision instead of self-insuring. And these are concepts that we've discussed before, but it's really helpful to hear from that vantage point from a mathematician's view. <laughs> so you do a lot of work with life insurance. Tell us about what Truth Concepts is and how you developed that software specifically to tell the truth in financial services. Well, really, I mean, the main, main purpose of the, of the uh, software is to bring some of the mathematical truth um, back into the financial world, which seems kind of weird because I mean, could there be right. any more math based industry than finance? Okay. So, you would think so not. <laughs> What's that? You would think that it's the most math based industry there is. <laughs> However, we see totally opposite conflicting ideas mm -hmm. that are mathematically correct on either side. How do you have that? And, and what happens is many times the math is right, but the information, the facts behind it are not. Mm. So I wouldn't say the math is right. Let me change that. The math is accurate. Yeah. It's just wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's unfortunate. And that's part of what we try to bring about. Uh, many times, what, this is the primary thing that I see that's fallacy in the financial world as far as calculations go. And that is leaving out a very critical piece mm -hmm. of the time value of money. And that's one of the big ones. You cannot take money out of time. You can't just add up costs over 20 years and say, oh, this is cumulatively, that's my cost. No, you lost time in that too. So you lost whatever that is, plus what that would have earned over that time frame. 
And so there's a lot of pieces like that that we leave out that make the calculations totally wrong in the mm -hmm. end. The math is right. In other words, if I add all those up, mathematically, yes, the cumulative amount is X. However, that is not the true picture because it didn't take into account the time value of money. Which so, is so interesting. There's more than just about the numbers. It's how you understand them and how they work together. And I think, I mean, even looking at basic, you know, elementary math, it's understanding that if you're doing a story problem, it's, it's knowing which numbers are relevant in that, in that scenario and how to apply them together. It's not just looking at A plus B plus C plus D. It's figuring out maybe you don't even need all those numbers or maybe you need X more numbers than are, than are supplied. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Uh, this, Todd, this first came to me when I was sitting in one of your truth concept um, seminars, and you were talking about the difference between uh, average and actual, where people where they just uh, add up the uh, um, the percentages and then uh, come to an average. And I'm an old high school basketball coach, and it hit me one day that you know if I have a I had a player that only made 50 out of 100 free throws, and I had another one, and that's 50%, and then I had another one that made two out of two on the bench, and that's 100%. You know, a lot of people say my team was averaging 75% because 100 plus 50 is, is 150 divided by two players is 75%. But when you do the math, it's like 50.9%. And, and that just hit me sitting in there. I'm, I'm thinking, boy, it is, it is people are looking at the math and they think, well, that's right but they're leaving out a lot of other things along the way that they need somebody that's experienced to help them see the picture. And that's what I think truth concept always does. It's, and like you said, in our industry, we really need more of the advisors and the producers to understand the math because they have these weird myths in their heads also. Right. Here's an, another interesting thing that's really, I mean, it's, it's difficult to do anything about, but we didn't understand the, the idea of risk. And I loved it. Somebody at a meeting recently said, your life is not a Monte Carlo simulation, which <laughs> is really true. an interesting thing because so, so you run a Monte Carlo simulation on an investment strategy as an example. It's mathematically accurate. Mm -hmm. However, when they say you have a 90% chance of making it, you your life is not a Monte Carlo simulation. What changes along the way throw that whole Monte Carlo simulation out? Or what if you are the of that 10% that it, it runs out in the first year or the second year or whatever time frame that is? So, so you then you have a hundred percent chance of loss. I mean, if you're the person who <laughs> was right. in the 10%. Yeah, yeah. Just, for, just for our listeners, because I know a lot of listeners are going to say, I don't even know what a Monte Carlo simulation is. I'm going to give you like the second grade version. It's basically where people, mathematicians in the investment world, they say, well, we're going to look back a period of time, maybe a, a hundred or 50 to a hundred years. And we're going to, we're going to take these investments along that time period. And then we're going to throw them into the future and said, if you're in these same type of investments, you're going to have an X amount of chance to ha still have money at a particular time. And that's what Todd's saying is, you know, at 90 years old, you, you have a 90% chance of actually having money. You have a 10% chance of actually running out of money. Or they could say at, eight, at age 86, you have a 30% chance of actually running out of money. And then at 98, so they're, they're looking at the future by, by going back and taking those investments uh, from the past and throwing them into the future. So just so we can explain to our listeners what Monte Carlo simulations are on a second grade level. Yeah. And Bruce, thank you for doing that. I think sometimes we get ahead of ourselves a little bit. So thank you for sharing that. And what I want to do, I want to pivot the conversation just a bit here. And I want to leave that idea because we're going to pick that up again in just a minute on Index Universal Life. So um, let's jump into IULs and let's talk about them from a mathematical perspective and the whole idea of looking back and looking into the future and compounding or not compounding. We're going to bring all that up in just a second. But these policies, IUL policies, have become very popular, very attractive. And a lot of times people will look at them with this basic broad brush stroke and say, hey, look, I can't lose money. Well, we have disseminated that myth and burst that apart in a previous episode that we did here. But I want to talk to you specifically from your perspective, from a mathematician's point of view. What do you wish most people knew about IUL policies? Well, the main thing is, and it, it's not to say it's bad or good or anything else. 
it's it's designed for what it for what it is. So if we go back and we we talk about we understand risk, then there's a risk element there. The reason, um, so many times what I hear about UL and so universal life, whether it's indexed, variable, whatever it is, it's mainly let's just talk about the chassis first. What's what it's built on. Mm -hmm. So 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 what happens there is many times universal life is sold as the same thing as whole life for half the premium. Wait a second. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> that's not possible. Okay. If we go back and we understand what we talked about at the beginning, there are no deals in the insurance industry. Mm -hmm. If it's half the price, then there's half the risk for the insurance company. What does that mean? If, what does risk mean to the insurance company? Risk means they have to pay out a claim. So what we're doing is if we're cutting the premiums in half, then we're reducing the chance that the insurance company is going to pay that claim out. Right. Okay. That if, if people understood that going in and they were okay with that, then that's fine. Here's where I have an issue. The main place I have an issue is most people who buy them do not understand the risk aspect there that they're taking on in place of the insurance company happening. And I so know true. this because I have been in some horrible conversations. Uh, you and I talked about that earlier with clients not any that I had sold because I haven't sold any universal life policies, but clients that have called in desperation saying, I have put money in this policy for the last 30 years. We did without vacations because we knew this was important. And now I'm getting notices from my insurance company telling me it's going to lapse. What do I do? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately there's no answer for that. I, the only thing I can say is um, you're right. And, and their response is, Insurance companies are terrible people. They've ripped off uh, people for so long. They don't pay claims, et cetera, et cetera. And it's because they didn't understand what they were buying. It's not necessarily yeah. that the product is bad. It's priced based on the risk. Is term insurance bad? No. No. But we understand with term insurance, because it's not called permanent, that term insurance is designed for a term of time. And ideally, you do not want to collect that premium. I mean, that death benefit, right? Right. Because <laughs> that means you're going to have to die early. Okay. So right. We don't want that. And people, people can understand term insurance in those terms. Whole life insurance, on the other hand, like we said, the premium is much higher because it's guaranteed to pay out a death benefit, whether we're still alive or not at a certain point in time. Right. Okay. What's so, so universal life has a premium somewhere in between that. So what does that mean? Is it still permanent? I would say no. Okay. It's given the permanent. And what that tells people is that means it's guaranteed to be there when it's called permanent. If it was called extended term insurance, I think people would understand it. And, and mm -hmm. maybe a lot of people would want to take on that risk. That's fine. But I think what they're doing is they're taking on risks that they don't understand they're taking. And that's where the problem is. And, and I know this from phone calls. Like I say, when I get people on the phone that had no idea, I was told this was going to be there when I died, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's interesting. That was actually a point that we made as well, that it's hard to call something permanent if it's not actually permanent. And it's sold as permanent because it's supposed to last that length of your life, but only if certain factors go according to plan. And those factors are not in your control. I mean, we don't control the markets that are that the IUL policies and all universal policies are hinged on. And so we cannot say with certainty that this will last your entire life, especially if you pay according to how it's illustrated, or especially if you don't pay and you take advantage of those flexible premiums and pay less. So I really like how you said um, that it's priced based on risk and that you really have to understand the risk of an IUL policy. Bruce, what were you going to share there? Well, Todd, um, why do you, I mean, I have my opinion on this, but why do you think then, because the companies do say it's a permanent, you know, product. Um, I like to get your perspective, you know, cause I've already, I've already told mine on a different podcast, but go ahead and get, give, give me your, you know, I, <laughs> I can't, I think the only, the only thing I can think of is permanent means something different to them than it does to me. <laughs> permanent <laughs> means, Semantics, right? <laughs> permanent to me has a guaranteed aspect around it. That means it's, it's got to be there permanently. That, that's what that means to me. I, and so the insurance companies must have a different definition for what permanent means to them is the only thing that I can, I can see. Yes. If everything works out just right, then it stays in place. And ideally you die um, before you run out of money. 
uh, you know, before you run out of premiums, before the cash value, before the costs get too big in the policy. And if you die before then and it paid out, then it was permanent for that person. But by that definition, if I die early with a term policy, that does that make it permanent? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like we're asking philosophical questions like that, you know, one handed clapping in the in the woods question about <laughs> does it actually make a sound? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, but I feel like we're going to that level. I mean, if you are the person who outlived the policy or for who additional premiums were required in order to keep it in force, it certainly was not permanent for you. Yeah, the permanent part comes from the contractual agreement. If you do what everything in the contract says you you can do it will stay in force that does mean though it can be increased premiums or if the contract if you miss a payment or goes into a lapse grace period it can also on certain contracts eliminate that particular uh, contract guarantees within the policy also yeah and typically that's 10 days yeah. So if the premium is 10 days late in most policies that in most universal life policies that um, that voids the guarantees. And, you know, I've I've known that's been in there. That's in that front 20, 30 pages of the illustration. They hope people won't read, I guess. But, you know, it's it's in there. <clears throat> and I've really never thought how serious that was until we had a client that that called their insurance company. They had a UL policy that they had bought years before and we always like to get the values and just see if we need to shore those policies up or whatever we need to do when we're doing the analysis. And they called the insurance company and asked what their guarantees were and whatever what their policy values were. And the clerk on the phone said, uh, you don't have guarantees. And they said, well, yeah, we bought a guaranteed universal life. And they said, well, we have it on record here that two years, a little over two years ago, your payment came in 15 days late. Mm. And so that voided your guarantees in the policy. And the client didn't even know this because they just had it record. And so the guarantees were gone. So again, it comes down to that statistical average. So the insurance company can price it lower because statistically some people are going to miss that payment. Think about this. You're making monthly payments on a policy for 50 years. That's 600 payments that have to be in there before 10 days. So as an example, Houston just had a, a tropical storm that came in, flooded Houston, uh, a large, the, one of the largest um, postal uh, accumulation places, mm -hmm. uh, the, the roof collapsed on. They don't um, know how long it'll be before they can get those letters and everything out of there. What is that going to do? If, if your UL premium check happened to be coming through Houston at that time, what happens to your policy? Ah, uh, yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah, everything, everything has to go perfect. And, and Todd, to your point earlier, people say, oh, look at these big, bad insurance companies that are not paying out. And, you know, I had a, a tragic thing happen. We talked about it on the show before. My house burned down, you know, and, and, I, and I was able to spread that risk pool and rebuild my house. And I know now how it wasn't a death of myself, but it was a death of our property, just like you were talking about mm -hmm. earlier, you know, your life is a property. And now, because that happened to me, people come up to me and say, oh, I got to make sure that the insurance company didn't screw that screw me. I bet they screwed you. And I'm like, no, they didn't screw me at all. They did exactly what they said they were going to do in the contract. And then we have clients that, you know, they, they, um, they have car insurance and something happens to them and it, you know, it's, it, they're not covered for uninsured motorists. And they say, yeah, look, they didn't want to pay their claim. I'm saying, I said, I'm <laughs> sorry. It wasn't in the contract. Right. You so, didn't pay for that. You didn't pay for it. And they're able to, it's not that they want people not to pay in that 10-day grace period, but they're doing that to keep the costs lower for everybody. Now, right. people love the fact that the cost is lower, <laughs> right? Of course. Right. But they don't realize that the reason it's lower is because you better follow this perfectly. It's a contract. And, and you know, Nelson Nash used to always say, if we don't have contracts, the whole fabric of our society collapses. Yes. You no. Know? And so that if people just understand that it's a contract, then nobody's getting screwed. You just have to understand the contract. Yeah. Do you know why contract law is 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 held above almost all other law in this country? No, probably, but I'd love to know. I've probably heard this before, but because of the Constitution, the Constitution is a contract. So so because that's why contract hmm. law is held at such a high esteem in this country because 
it affects our belief in the Constitution. It, it is, that is a contract. That's all we have as citizens in this country. So we keep that contract law at a very high, high level. Oh, that's and interesting. So that's true with the insurance company as well. That is really interesting. So I want to ask you then a question. So as we're looking at the contract of an IUL policy, we were talking a little bit about the show about this before the show as well, that they look back to see what the, um, the rates of return have been in the, in the stock market. And you said you've done this as well. And you look at going forward and, and what that would actually be if we performed according to what historical returns have been. Um, talk about that a little bit. How do the rates of return inside an IUL policy, how are they based on history? And how does that relate to their contract? It's really kind of an interesting look. And, and so what happens, one of the things that happens very often, so now we're talking about the indexed aspect of universal life. So we kind of understand, I think, the chassis. We've kind of talked about that a little bit and the, the basic universal life chassis. The index portion is just the way they do the crediting in the policy. So okay. that would be in a, in a variable policy, it's based on putting the, the cash value actually in the market versus an indexed um, crediting uses. Um, so the money for the crediting on the cash value in an index universal life policy is taken out of the portfolio to, to, to sit in that cash. Um, so it's in the same place that the insurance company has their investments for whole life policies or anything else, but they use the index to determine how much they're going to credit to the policy. So the money isn't in an index policy actually in the index. It just uses that to credit whatever the client um, has as far as cash value. Does that make sense? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. So you're saying it's in the same general pool as the rest of the cash values for all policies, but they're crediting according to the index. Correct. It's not actually in the index. Mm -hmm. They're just using the index to credit the policy. And so as a result, what a lot of the people um, selling index universal life talk about is that you get to take advantage of the upside potential of the market without any of the downside risk. Mm -hmm. Because typically there's a floor, there's a guaranteed floor. It might be 0%, some companies might be 2%, whatever it is, but there's usually a floor. So what that means is with a variable policy, when your money's actually invested in, in the market, if the market goes down, your cash value went down by that amount. With an indexed product, because they put a floor on it, if the market goes way down, they say, oh, we're only gonna drop your, your value to, to zero. We're not going to have it go negative or 2%. We'll guarantee you on 2%, even if the market is negative 50 or whatever it is. So the idea is you don't get to, or you don't have to participate when the market goes down. It sounds all good. In order for the insurance company to do that, remember everything's a trade-off, right? Between risk and cost. So in order for them to do that, <clears throat> they have other places. They put a cap on the high end. So with a variable policy, if you're in the market and the market rebounds and goes to 30%, you get to enjoy that. In the index product, they put a cap on how much you can earn on the upside and that, that amount moves around. Um, most companies have guarantees in their contract that say they can't lower the cap lower than 4%. But what that means is they could bring it all the way down to 4% and even if the market did 20%, they would only credit 4% to your policy or whatever that is. Now, what's interesting is I have run numbers back um, 40 years just to see what it looked like in a variable policy where you get to take advantage of the dividends that are earned. There's no cap on the top end. However, you do have to experience the negatives when it goes down. But the numbers are actually better on those than they are with the floor keeping you from losing on the bottom end because of what you have to give up for the cap or potentially participation ratios or whatever else. And what is a participation ratio? That means what percentage of the re return in the index are they going to credit to your account? And that with most companies is not guaranteed either. I know many people will say, well, my company does hundred percent today, but look in the contract and it will say, that the participation ratio is not guaranteed. So the company can change that if they need to in order to, to fit, again, uh, from a risk standpoint into their, <laughs> into 
into their product. I mean, that's all they can do. The insurance company has to make money. And people, a lot of times, I don't think don't understand that. It's kind of like what Bruce was talking about earlier. Um, you know, I put money into this policy for, for X amount of time and I should be getting something back. Well, no, the idea of insurance is that it's spread into the pool, right? That mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, some, the reason everybody's able to pay less is because some people aren't going to collect, okay? Whole life policy is a little different from the standpoint of it's guaranteed to pay out even at the end. I love that you talk about that because if we look at then just comparing the difference between variable and indexed universal life, you would think, and usually indexed universal life or IUL is talked about in terms of it's less risky than variable because you're not participating in the downswing or the downturn of the market. You can't lose money per se, but we've talked about this on the previous podcast as well, that if your crediting rate or your, um, the rate that is applied to your cash value is, say, I don't know, 2%, and your cost inside the policy because of your increasing cost of insurance over time is 2.5 or 3%, then you actually can go down and lose cash value even in that supposedly safe IUL policy, right? Yes, but typically what you will hear from the IUL salesman is the policy won't go down because you're paying premiums. But the issue is what if you aren't? <laughs> what if you're at a place that you've stopped paying premiums because you were told you only needed to pay them for X amount of time and because of the great return on the policy, it was going to carry across the rest of the time frame. So yes, it is true. You won't see the ca- if you're paying premiums in that scenario that you were just talking about and somebody your 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 uh, crediting has gone to the floor, 2% or 0% and your costs are more than that but you're covering the cost by making a premium payment. So when you look at the policy, the cash values didn't actually go down from that year to the next year, but it's only because you put more money in to cover it basically, not because the values weren't less. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. So it was your infusion of capital that caused it to be buoyed above this uh, (laughs) sinking water almost, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's just interesting as, um, so then you're saying that variable actually performed better in terms of looking at historically the 40 years in the past. Let's talk then about, this is something that we addressed right before the show, or maybe, no, it was a little bit earlier in the show as well. You were talking about, we can't compound compound inside of an IUL policy. And even if we're looking back at the historical returns, those averages are not the same as the actual returns that you will get going forward. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, you can compound. I mean, what, what happens is, um, just like anything else, yeah, the, the numbers are compounding in a UL policy. You, you get credited X amount of dollars based on what the index did. And now then your increases the next year are going to be based on that additional dollars, the what you earned previously plus your current one. So, so yeah, that is going to continue to compound um, based on, on what those numbers are. So, yeah, it's, it's like anything else. Um, it's going to be based on the total value that's there. So the compounding will occur on those on those policies as long as it's, again, tracking forward. Okay, so let me re- restate that in a different way. So you are compounding. However, if you look back at, say, 40 years of history and you say the average return in the market in those past 40 years was, I don't know, 6%, then can we, and I know the answer to this, but I want you to speak to this, can you then apply, oh, I'm going to get 6% going forward in this policy? Yeah, it goes back to the whole idea of we are not a Monte Carlo simulation, right? Our lives are not, are not Monte Carlo simulations. So the result is that that doesn't, that doesn't work. A, a low, a down market is worse, is more down than an up market is up. How's that? Uh, does that does that make sense? <laughs> I understand that. Yes, and, and and that's the problem. The negatives are are more impactful than the positives are, and so you have to overcome that. And you know, let me see if if you if, conceptually it may be hard to stick with this, but just as an example, let's say that I was willing to guarantee you a twenty five percent average rate of return. Would you sign up for a mutual fund that I'm going to create? Well, yeah. I mean, that sounds great, right? Okay, if I earn 100% the first year, so let's do it based on $100,000, just round numbers. Mm-hmm. $100,000, earn 100%, I'm going to have $200,000 at the end of the year, right? Mm-hmm. But if the next year I lose 50%, then you're back to your original $100,000 for a zero rate of return, right? 
But yes. let's average that. Yes. 100 plus minus 50 is 50 divided by two. I, I fulfilled my guarantee of average of 25%, yet you actually yes, you earned you. Okay. That's absolutely true. And that is extremely eye-opening, I think, to somebody who's thinking of an average rate of return, or I can expect a certain average going forward, because that does not necessarily even mean you're going to be positive, right? Right. And see, what's interesting, there's twofold there. Yes, the averages, they're not the truth of what happens when you see the ups and downs. But the other side of it is 100% positive was not enough to overcome half of that as a negative. The negatives hurt more than the ups than the positives did. Does that make sense? Yes. So it is an interesting thing. And yet that's what people want to do. They want to take things out of time. One of the things that we hear very often um, is from from the um, Index Universal Life side. And what they say is, look, if over the last 40 years, you would put money in an Index Universal Life policy instead of a whole life, you'd have three times as much money. Well, you can't say that because Index Universal Life policies didn't exist back then. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you have no idea what the insurance company would have had to do to adjust the participation ratios, the caps, et cetera, et cetera, so that they came out making money. So you want to take today's environment of whatever that is with your particular company and say that would have been the same for the last 40 years, even though the market was all over the board across that. But it's, it's not apples to apples. You can't do that because you don't know what would have happened. Does that make sense? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, it's challenging to look at something, especially when we don't have a long-term history of something performing with guarantees. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love whole life so much, because you can look back and you can say, well, most of the companies we're, we're working with have uh, close to 200 or more than 200 year history of paying out dividends, of being profitable as a company, but also fulfilling their claims and their guarantees, the guaranteed cash value, the guaranteed death benefit, the guaranteed premiums. And so when you then look at, well, none of those guarantees can be said of an IUL policy. You don't have the guaranteed premium. You don't have the guaranteed cash value. You don't have the guaranteed death benefit. Um, I mean, that is challenging then to look into the future and say, well, what will this do based on an unknown future? Right. And, and that's, part of the, that's part of the problem is the math is correct. Okay. As long as everything stays in current environment from now on, that means no black swan events. Mm -hmm. Okay. Who could have predicted 9-11? Who could have predicted mm -hmm. the depression, World War I, World War II, Vietnam, all these things that occur. And if we look at today and we price a policy based on current mortality and the current cost values and the current economic scenario and we put it to the minimums so that it has to be there exactly like that all the way out for the next 50 years for this to work. I, I can't say that won't happen. <laughs> I'm just going to say the likelihood is pretty low. The other side of it is the insurance companies for whole life insurance, the premiums are much higher. They have been through war wars. They have been through Depressions. They've been through all these things and they charged appropriately for the contract. And here's the thing. Does that mean they overcharged? Yes, mm -hmm. they did. But they return it when that doesn't happen in the form of a dividend. So ultimately, the fact that I put too much money in my policy just means my cash value grew by more than it should have when those events don't happen. And I would much rather go that approach, cover it at the maximum cost, the maximum mortality charges, instead of saying, well, you know, our experience over the last few years has been that actually only this many people died, so we're gonna reduce the premium, and then all of a sudden we have something happen that pushes it back to the normal mortality curve, mm -hmm. and the costs are too high for what they have charged for, and that's where the danger comes in. It's not that they're, that the policies are wrong. They are correct. The contract is there. It's just based on a different risk value. And I'm not willing to take that on for myself. So I'm certainly not willing to take that on for my clients. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and excellent and well said. I think it makes me think of, you know, if you try to pay the least amount possible or get the cheapest thing, 
you're probably going to get what you pay for in a lot of ways. And I think, I mean, if you're just shopping for, I don't know, a car, you could buy the cheapest car on the market. It's probably not going to be as sturdy, as substantial, as good of gas mileage, as long lasting as the most expensive car on the market. And now, you know, barring Maseratis and all the, you know, really, (laughs) really, really overpriced vehicles. But if you look at the general um, spectrum of what you could purchase, going with the absolute cheapest is probably not going to get you something high quality. Right. And, and here's the thing. The, the companies that we deal with are all mutual life insurance companies personally. Uh, we just like the, the mutual aspect versus the stock companies. It's not to say the stocks are bad or anything else. That's just our, our, our direction. But here's the thing. In order for a mutual company to stay mutual by law, they have to distribute all of the profits to the policyholders. Otherwise, they lose their, their ability to, to be mutual. Okay, So they have to distribute. So basically what that means is the policyholders, as owners of the mutual company, receive all the profits of the insurance company. If I receive all of the profits, how can I receive more than all the profits? You can't. So isn't that really what the index universal life policies are promising is more than all the money they have? I, I don't understand that really. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I know what a lot of people say is that's because of the way they invest. That's because of the options they buy to cover the top and the bottom. If that was such a great investment tool, then why didn't the insurance company do it on their pool of money? Okay. They don't take that tactic on that side or else they would have that additional dollars. They know there's some risk. There. Why aren't they putting it in the index? Exactly. And, and so, so that is a question that I always have. And the, the other piece is with that, <laughs> with that index and then buying those options, again, what you're doing is increasing the cost on the policy for the insurance company to be able to ensure that they can cover that on the upper end and the lower end. They're buying options to, to cover that, and that's just a cost to the policy. To uh, would that. you say options are just another form of insurance for the insurance company? They really are. Yeah, and so if they have an additional cost within it, that's just another cost that has to be passed along to the consumer. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So what, what I find interesting, Todd, is, um, you know, I've, I've gotten to discussions because we released our podcast um, and blogs and things for, you know, um, our, um, our discussion about whole life and index universal life. And I think I look back, I, I think I probably have sold about 12 index universal life policies, but I haven't sold one in the last nine years. And all, all 12 of them were sold to basically business owners that understand risk. I hope if you're edu- educate them and they were, and they were adamant about the fact that, Hey, I know what you guys are saying. Plus, we also we also had a capitalization strategy for them. You know, in other words, we knew where the, it was going to come from, and we made it very clear. And we actually had them write it in their own handwriting. If you do not continue to make these payments, and if the index doesn't perform, you may have to put more capital in here. Right. And and so we did that. But since then, it's just. We just kind of feel like it's just not even worth it. We'll actually just walk away from it and say, hey, we respect your decision, so on and so forth. What I, where I'm getting at on, on this is when we tar- start talking about index universal life, variable in a, uh, universal life, or just universal life, it's not that the people that are selling these are bad people. Right. It's just Absolutely. that it's, it's just that they have been given a product, and even if they think they understand it, they, they're, not, they're not conveying that risk well enough to the consumer. Yeah. And I've got, I got into a discussion in LinkedIn uh, when I shared our, our uh, blog, and this guy was like, well, I do all those things. And I said, um, and he goes, it'll, it'll never happen. The index, you're not, you're not going to lose money. And I simply said, you know, I'm looking at this. You got into the industry a year and a half ago. You know, you haven't had one of those phone calls yet. You've never, I guess exactly what I said to him. You've never had to try to help a crying lady try to figure out how she's going to put more money into her universal life policy. And I've done that on several occasions. And I said, until, and I said, and, and the index has has performed pretty well over the last 10 years. I said, so until you go through this, 
you you think you understand it, but deep down you it, you don't really understand. It's kind of like you say with the truth concept training. You know, until the the producers and the advisors really understand the numbers when you present it to them, the, one of the, your goals is not for them to show the numbers to people, but to have them have such a great understanding of the numbers that they have great conviction when they're talking to consumers. Right. And, 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 and here's something that adds to that. Look at the guaranteed column. Okay. If the insurance company is not willing to guarantee that policy all the way out, what do you think the chance is that it's going to make it? I mean, the insurance company's not willing to put <laughs> themselves on the line, right? And, and I know the argument's going to come up, yes, but I have a guaranteed death benefit in my policy. And if you look at the guaranteed death benefit policies and you look at the, ca at the guaranteed column, typically what you're going to see is the cash value will fall away way early and they'll hold the death benefit out to the end. But remember, and this is what you need to look at, is what is the definition of the guarantee? What is it that cancels that guarantee? Things like the premium payment being 10 days later or more. Um, all those kind of things play into the risk, which is why the insurance company is able to do that because they know that some of them are going to lapse. And that's the unfortunate side. As you said, as long as the client understands the risk they're taking on and they want to do it, that's a whole different scenario. But I'm going to tell you that every client, every person that has called me with a policy coming apart bought it with the understanding it was guaranteed to be there forever. Even though, yes, in the policy, in the front, they had an illustration that showed the guarantees weren't going to last. That's not what they heard. Yes. So people get amnesia. <laughs> now, let's, now, now let's switch a little bit, Todd, and, and talk about uh, the effects of policy loans on Index Universal Life. And I think that's something that we don't know what's going to happen. Here's the thing, and I haven't looked at it in a little while, but I know we... When I was first digging into a bunch of this, none of the companies could run an illustration showing what happens with a down market. They couldn't run those scenarios. So we don't, to my knowledge, we don't know what's going to happen in that scenario. I don't know. Have you heard something? Does anybody alluded to it? I, I, don't, I don't think we know. There's a big unknown as to what really happens internally. If we have a stretch of the market flat or going negative, what happens is those costs are piling up inside the policy, and then you also have an outstanding loan. I, I don't know. Yeah, that's what I was. That's kind of where I was going at. I mean, we do. We know there's going to be a cost for the loan. There has to be a cost for the loan, right? And so, if you have an extended period of time where the index doesn't perform the way it is going to, once again, going back to your uh, earlier thing, negatives hurt a lot more than the positives help. Yeah. So if you have the negative drag of the loans plus the the index doesn't perform, now people are gonna say, well, it's not going it's not going negative. Remember, there's a floor, but there's cost in the policy. And the other thing I don't think people, uh, uh, advisors or producers understand is the insurance cost is is the difference between the cash value and the and the, the death benefit. It's that risk between the two. Right. And what happens to the cost of that as the cash value goes down? And the, that's, yeah. the risk goes up to the insurance company. So what happens to the cost of insurance? Yeah. So, so they up. end up having to take more cash out of the policy to cover the term insurance that's inside the policy to get it shored up to the same death benefit. So it's, it's like the more it goes down, it starts to spiral very quickly. Yeah. And, and people don't understand that when they're talking about um, how great these things are. Right. And, and, and the other issue there, and I think it's something that's really difficult to understand until you've seen it, and that is when those down times happen can impact what happens. So let's say, as an example, that over 40 years, the policy did an actual return. I mean, the, the market did an actual return, not averages, but the actual return. Let's say it was 10%. But if you go through a period early in the policy where it was doing negatives and then it tried to catch up on the back, the policy may have already come apart before it gets to ever take advantage of the upside. So, so there's, there's sequencing that also causes a tremendous problem that we have no way of calculating. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring that up earlier. Because I think, that, unfortunately, the environment the last two or three years has been rich with people going in and saying, I don't like the stock market so high, it's, 
Um, I know it's going to crash. So what alternative can I do right now? And people have said, well, look, let's go into an index universal life product because you can't lose. But if, but if now what happens is the sequence is it flattens out for the next three, four years. That's the worst time in sequence of return to actually lose money is in the early years. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, people don't understand that either. And, and see, here's an interesting thing. We talked about the word permanent earlier, and I'll, I'll be quiet after this. <laughs> but we talked about the word permanent. What does the word insure mean to you? It means it's going to happen. Right. So, or a guarantee. Kind of What's that? Or a guarantee. Yeah. Right. And so, so what we're doing, whether it's variable policy, whether it's whatever it is, we're taking the insure side, the certainty side, and we're making it not certain by mm -hmm. putting it into the market or putting it into an area where it's influenced by outside stuff. So it is kind of an interesting twist to call it insurance and then risk that portion. That's, that's insurance is supposed to be the opposite of risk, right? Mm -hmm. I've, used yeah, this, uh, I've talked to people about this all the time. I don't, if you want to go into the stock market, go into the stock market. Right. But insure, insure. Don't mix them together. That's exactly what I was going to say. And I know Bruce and I are very like-minded on that. But yes, insurance is meant to be something that you can have count. You can count on it. You can lean against it. You can know that it's going to be there for you. And yeah, don't, don't try to mix them. It muddies the waters tremendously. Right. Once again, your, 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 um, your um, concepts are coming into my mind. It's kind of like when you talk about, when uh, people talk about a well-diversified portfolio with stocks and bonds and people say well <laughs> well you got to do these bonds because when the when the stocks go down you're protected so what you're saying is also oh, you know it's going to go bad <laughs> right yeah. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't carry that anchor yeah. of, of the bond portfolio if you really thought that the market was going to do 10% or 12% from now on why in the world would you have a 3% bond in yeah. the mix <laughs> that's a very, very good point. And I think, I think that's the main thing. I mean, when you, when you really want to boil it all down inside of any of the universal policies, and specifically this, this podcast is talking about IULs, but if you think that what you want to do is get higher um, policy values and higher cash value by going into an IUL policy than by going into whole life, where you think, well, hey, this is going to perform stronger because it's attached to the index, right? I get this crediting based on the index. So I'm thinking I'm going to get a better rate of return, but that thinking is a fallacy. It's illogical to think that you're going to always have those positives, um, upswings and you're never going to go negative. You're never going to have a low year and you're never going to hit that crediting rate floor, right? Well, I can't say that that won't happen. I can't say that something that has never happened before won't happen. Um, sure. I mean, <laughs> there, there you go. Right? That's true. <laughs> However, I think the likelihood of it is questionable. So here's the thing. How, how much risk are you willing to take on? If it has a 50% chance of everything being up for the, for the next 40 years while you have your policy and you die with it, is that okay with you? Now, when it, if it, if it doesn't go that way, and 30 years out after you put premiums in at all this time frame, and now the policy is going to lapse because you can't afford to do anything. Are you going to remember that you were okay with a 40% chance that it was going to make it or a 20% chance or an 80% chance or whatever it is when that comes around, are you going to say, cool, I took this risk on and it was worth the lower premium to me. I doubt that's going to happen. I find that really, really good people, really good people, Myself included, because I have I, I don't sometimes I do not sometimes take responsibility for my actions. You know, I find really, really good people in that time of stress. They look to blame somebody else, <laughs> you know, because they just can't look inside themselves. And I'm, I'm throwing myself into that. That's my that's sometimes my initial reaction. Well, well you know, this happened. So it wasn't really my responsibility. And think how much more pressure there is in a scenario like this. Let's say that one of the two individuals in a couple, him maybe, her maybe, made the decision to buy this policy. And now 40 years later, you're going to have to tell that spouse, you know that money we put in this all this time frame? It's getting canceled. 
we're going to lose everything in there. That is not an easy thing to do. You were supposed to be the financial guru in your family, and mm -hmm. now you've let them down. Are you going to blame yourself, or are you going to look for somebody else to be at fault? Most of the time, you're going to look for somebody else to be at fault, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, just human nature. Yeah, and you were supposed to be insured with a, a product that we thought was actually insurance that was going to be there. And so I think when we look at this whole conversation, I mean, I really just appreciate your uh, even just the con the concepts that you're bringing to light as we're discussing IULs, because I think, I mean, Bruce, you said it really well at the beginning. It really boils down to who shares, who carries that risk? Is it you or is it the insurance company? And ultimately, I would say for the people that we talk to and what I want in my personal financial life, I want those guarantees. I want a foundation and solid ground of certainty beneath me that I'm saying, I want to transfer this risk as much as possible because I want to be in a position where I have the peace of mind and I can sleep at night and I know the insurance company is going to be there for me. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, I think that's the whole point of insurance personally. I mean, that's, and so if for me, like Bruce said earlier, if a client comes to me and they really want universal life, I'll find somebody else to, to handle that because I do not want that phone call in the future. They are not going to remember. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, I, I want it. If I'm, if I am talking about insurance, I want to be sure that it's there. Absolutely. Well, I think this has been a really eye-opening conversation today and um, Todd, I know you have as well, um, some resources and we'll make sure that we have those available on the, um, that we'll link to those in the show notes as well. And specifically one that addresses some of these concerns of IULs versus whole life insurance. And so it's kind of more conceptual, um, demonstration side by side that you can look down and see what the differences are and who's taking the risk and what that actually means. So we'll make sure that we have that resource in the podcast show notes as well. And Todd, is there anything else that you'd like to share about truth concepts or about you or about IULs um, in closing today? Yeah. I, one thing is about longevity. And I think that's a misunderstood thing. I would encourage everybody to go do a Google search on Time Magazine, February, 2015. The cover of the article of the, of the Time magazine has a picture of a baby, and it said this baby could live to be 142 years old. That's one of the things that we forget, and one of the things that's talked about often in the IU, well, you'll never live that long, so you'll collect the policy. Well, the problem with that thinking is we're doing that based on what we know today, and what we have to understand is medical science is on an exponential curve up. We do not have any idea how long we're going to be living. In fact, if you go back and you look at Social Security, when Social Security went into effect, life expectancy was 63 and a half. Okay, nobody was supposed to collect um, Social Security. Nobody could dream of anybody living until 80 years old. And <laughs> my mom is 80 years old. And after two weeks of retirement, she went back to work and she still works four days a week. Oh, so, I love it. So, <laughs> so this idea that oh, nobody could live to be 110 years old, so they'll be able to collect them. That's not true, okay? We're looking at it in current environment and not realizing all the external forces that are going to push that way out there, just like they have for the last 100 years. Well, I think um, just on that note then, it makes sense to have as many guarantees as possible because we have an unknown environment going forward into the future. And so we don't have solid ground of the future. That's a, a huge unknown. So let's put insurance around us that will carry us whether that, no matter what the future holds. Yep, perfect. So thank you, Todd, for committing to share the truth with our audience today and through your work with Truth Concepts. It has been just tremendously valuable for us today. And in closing, Please remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. 
If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.